What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Jesse Strauss. The Cop City Project has become a national flashpoint for the struggle against police excesses and the underfunding of social programs and organizations. Bringing us up to speed, Cop City is a proposed massive police training facility that the city of Atlanta has been trying to create, which would involve clear-cutting an area of forest in order to build these massive facilities. But the city has met resistance along the way. People have organized resistance to the plan for two years, including a protest that came to a head in January when a police raid killed Stop Cop City activist Tortuguita, a 26-year-old indigenous queer organizer, shot by police while their hands were raised. More recently, members of a group that raised and administered bail funds for protesters were arrested for their solidarity work. And just last week, after an overnight city council session with many hours of community members speaking out against Cop City, the council voted to fund the plan with $33 million now and $1.2 million more each year for the next 30 years. That public cost is about twice as high as was reported in late 2021 when the proposal was first authorized. On today's show, we're going to go deeper into some of the background behind Cop City and what it means for the city of Atlanta to make these funding choices at the expense of funding social programs. My guest today is Ariana Brazier, a black queer feminist mom who wrote her doctoral dissertation on the intersections of housing insecurity and the ways that black children and families play in Atlanta. We'll be talking about the relationship between Atlanta's defunding of homeless services and the unneeded funding for Cop City. Thank you for joining us, Ariana. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start with Peachtree Pine. Peachtree Pine was the biggest shelter in the Southeast. What was it? What was your relationship to it? And why doesn't it exist anymore? Yeah, uh, I volunteered with the Peachtree Pine Homeless Shelter in summer 2014. I actually kind of found my way into the doors by happenstance. My brother lived across the street in a local apartment building, and I could always see a lot of activity outside and on the roof of the building. And so one day we went inside and asked what was going on. And a couple months later, I was there for my first day as a volunteer case manager. Um, and so it was a huge warehouse facility that had been um, turned into a predominantly men's shelter, but after hours, it housed women and children in an emergency overflow area. Um, some nights it was reported that the shelter would house up to an over a thousand people. Most nights that I was there, July through about September of 2014, there was probably well over five or 600. Um, and I feel like the task force was is a special place. It had its tension. It had a lot of systemic issues and violences that are important to acknowledge. And also there was a lot of um, community building that was fostered in the space. There was a rooftop garden and people who lived in the shelter full time also tended to that garden. People who lived in the shelter were responsible for maintenance and staff. Um, church services brought in the food every day and it was completely run by volunteers with the exception of um, the director and uh, maybe like a few other administrative individuals. Even the system we used to log 
the people that were staying in the shelter and their needs was designed by someone staying in the shelter. Um, so it, it was a quirky place that also had an art studio in the front of the building. I think many people forget about a number of people from the city would use that space as both studio and um, like display, but also people in the shelter would occasionally produce pieces that got put on display and students would come and paint people in the shelter. So very unique, very quirky, very misunderstood shelter building. And you said uh, it's it was the biggest homeless shelter in the Southeast. Can you give us some numbers just to put that into context for us? You also mentioned uh, the task force. Just let us know what that is. Ah, okay. So the Metro Atlanta Task Force was um, a committee of people who were founded, I believe, in the late 80s when 17 people died during a cold snap because of homelessness. And then during the Olympics, they were arresting people they're arresting black men with these like pre-issued warrants and the task force is sent it to public prominence then. And that was the group that was responsible for managing the peach tree and pine shelter building. Um, and so, yeah, as I mentioned, the shelter housed over a thousand people any given night. When I was there, there was approximately probably like an average of five or 600 a night. The beds themselves, I think they're like bunks for about 300 there were these like private, semi-private units that were in a separate wing of the building. And those were for people who um, like were working in the shelter. And then there were also these like private rooms in the very back of the building for people who lived in the shelter. And there was emergency overflow for women and children. And I worked most of my time in the evenings with the women and children. And some nights we would get up to about like 60 people in a three a three room office space so there is significant overcrowding throughout the building um, especially in the area for women and children and i think that's the part that's most often overlooked is that that shelter housed children and um, women they slept on mattresses on the floor they didn't have bunks or a predetermined space and that was because of some policy that didn't allow um, regular standard shelter for these women and children in the same building. And so I think like the classification was overflow to work around that and ensure that we didn't have to turn anyone away. So a shelter that was far from perfect in terms of the services that it provided. Can you take us then, it started in the early 80s. Can you take us jumping forward to 2016 in Atlanta when the mayor created plans to transition the building that was housing the shelter? Can you talk about the mayor's plans and what happened with them? Yeah, the mayor and Essential Atlanta Progress, um, this like business district group uh, that focuses a lot of its work in attracting new business to the city of Atlanta, wanted the shelter space. They wanted to shut it down. Um, I believe it was for bad for business. Um, so it's argued. And so that building is on prime real estate. It's located directly across the street from Emory University Hospital. It's on Peachtree Street. So it's also like connected a direct access way to a number of other important buildings throughout the city, including the Bank of America building, which is like at a catacorner on the other end of the block, a number of really large uh, recently renovated apartment complexes. So it's just in this ideal location. 
And any given day of the week when the shelter was like in its heyday, there could be up to 100 people sleeping outside the shelter. Um, and so the mayor, Kasim Reed, at the time, he had committed to seeing that shelter closed before he left office. And so they were mired in, I want to say, maybe like a 10-year legal battle over the shelter, the Metro Atlanta Task Force for the Homeless, the mayor in the um, Central Atlanta Progress. And the mayor had threatened to use eminent domain um, to shut down the shelter. And in 2015, 2016, in one of those two years, he had proposed building a training facility for SWAT, police, and fire station on that property. Um, and so a number of plans were proposed that were supposedly supposed to be of greater service to the city than that shelter was. And there was, it was always like a chicken and an egg situation. The shelter um, would counterclaim that Central Land of Progress, the mayor, the city itself was destroying their reputation and making it harder for them to bring in funding to maintain the building. But the city was always arguing that the building was in such disrepair that it wasn't safe for its residents and clients. So um, it was it was a back and forth about what actually goes on in the shelter, who's actually served, and whether or not it is um, productive for the city. And if we're talking about what would be of greater service to the city, again, you were saying the mayor at the time was calling for a consolidated police fire and SWAT facility at that site, which of course now we can reflect on in light of what they're, the city is planning for the Cop City project. Before we get deeper into the Cop City project, though, the Peachtree Pine Shelter has been referred to as the emergency relief valve for a system long broken. Mm-hmm. Going back, what are the consequences of shutting down an emergency relief valve? At what point did the shelter actually close and what happens to the people that used it for services? Yeah, so these are all really important questions. And in preparation for our discussion today, actually, I was looking at some numbers that I think will answer your question. So in 2018, Scalawag produced an article about peach tree and pine shelter. And according to sociology professor Deidre Oakley, they estimated that once the shelter closed, there were about 3,300 emergency and transitional shelter beds across 20 shelters in the city of Atlanta. So this is not including Peachtree and Pine. So if every single homeless person in Atlanta in 2018 needed a bed to sleep in that night or on any given night, there would be about 270 people left outside. So the shelter wasn't just an emergency valve in that it compensated, it provided a lot of beds for a lot of people. It was an emergency valve in that anybody could stay at this shelter. And so that's a significant gap. That's That was in 2018, right? So these numbers are, are radically different now. But, and there have been a number of shelters that have also closed since Peach Jam Pine closed in fall of 2017. The Central Atlanta Progress was responsible for rehousing and relocating all of the people that were staying in the shelter. Their representatives said that they housed all of what, but 100. But what is visible to any observant eye in the city of Atlanta is that many people just repopulated other popular camping areas, um, like the Bell Street Bridge behind Grady Hospital. Um, and just like there's been a number of other tents and camping areas that have 
um, increased in, in its numbers. And I personally believe that was a result of the shelter closing. And so, yeah, the shelter was an emergency valve because it was considered like a, like a low level acceptance shelter. Or There's a lot of terms for what it would have been um, labeled, but basically like we didn't turn anyone away. Unless you had been banned from the shelter for some reason, you could stay without ID, you could stay without um, your birth certificate, you didn't have to have some sort of pre-registration. So we would literally receive people who are like fresh off of the Greyhound, fresh out of Grady Hospital. The, the ambulance would literally deliver people to the shelter. Um, and so there aren't shelters like that in Atlanta now. There, I. There's one supposedly, but I wasn't able to locate the name of this shelter. But most shelters do require some form of ID. They have a number of restrictions on like alcohol and drug use. They have stricter curfews that make it hard for people who are working, who, who have childcare concerns that might affect their schedules. The task force did not have all of this. Um, and so, yeah. It was considered bottom of the bottom for a number of residents because that meant you got a lot of people from a lot of different areas. And there was tension there, but it was also literally an emergency valve for so many people, particularly families who wanted to be able to stay together but could not afford or could not access other shelters because they were at capacity or because they had lost access to important personal records. Yeah, so the the shelter closed its doors in December of 2017. At the same time, basically, I mean, public engagement around Cop City didn't start until 2021, but plans for it had started in 2017, around the same time that the shelter closed. Mm -hmm. Can you help us draw the line from the defunding of Atlanta's homeless support system to funding of more police efforts? And that could be, I think there's a program called HOPE or H-O-P-E, as well as Cop City? Yeah. So there's this argument that I make in this article that you're referring to, that police need homeless people um, in order to maintain their function in the world. Basically, we, they need poor people. Uh, without poor people to criminalize, who are they serving? Or like, what are they doing? And so at the same time the shelter is closing, you're having this increase in the homeless population, and now there's cause to increase policing, right? If there are more people on the street, then there's this presumption that crime will increase. And if crime is preparing to increase, then we need more police officers in order to ensure some concept of safety. So the two coincide because now that the shelter is closing, we know that there'll be more people on the street, and that funding now needs to go towards police because we need more police officers. We need better trained police officers. We need new divisions within the police precinct. And so what you're referring to with this HOPE program, is a, it's a group or an, a division within the Atlanta Police Department that focuses on sweeping homeless encampments, um, supposedly with the goal of rehousing individuals that are sleeping in these tent cities and these tent areas. But what actually happens when cops conduct these sweeps is people's entire livelihoods are, are destroyed. People are killed. Um, when you think about how communities form and how people experience safety in very different ways, depending on the conditions, many people in the city of Atlanta have chosen to sleep outside because, as I mentioned, these shelter conditions are overcrowded. They're dangerous. It, 
depending on your identity, whether or not you speak English, um, whether or not you're from Atlanta, there's just so many factors that have to be considered when you are deciding what shelter to stay in or what street to sleep on. And so when these police officers are conducting these raids, they're destroying mutual aid efforts. These groups of people have come together to protect each other's stuff, to feed each other, to um, provide a level of safety and uh, entertainment. If you drive through certain areas of the city, you see people outside playing chess, you see them playing cards, you know, you see people in conversation and you see people in deep relationship. They're caring for each other. And much like when gentrification dissolves community ties in a particular neighborhood, when police come in and destroy encampments, they're, they're doing something very similarly. They're dissolving um, the community that existed there. And most times they're not able to relocate these individuals into permanent housing as is advertised. Because the numbers that I read just today is that one in 10 of every person arrested in the city of Atlanta is homeless uh, or arrested and jailed is homeless. So that's literally one in 10 people. And so, yeah, there has, there's this connection here between like what we perceive to be safety, right? If the streets are clear of people, we can assume that that's a safe street. There's no loitering. There's no people outside. Um, and we assume that that is an indication that police are doing their job. And so when the shelter closed, it did literally clear that area, it cleared that street. And now all the funding that was supposedly supposed to be poured into the shelter system, not just the shelter, but a system um, can be diverted to the organization that supposedly created that sense of safety, which is the police. Well, and what would it take for Atlanta to maintain and support homeless services? Maybe like Peachtree and Pine, we, you know, you've you've mentioned that Peachtree and Pine was not the perfect space, but it was a space that offered uh, some semblance of, of safety and certainly housing to the people that it served. What would it take for Atlanta to maintain support services like that for homeless folks compared to maybe the funding that's been committed to Cop City? Yeah, so in 2018, there was this commitment to, instead of rebuilding these large-scale shelters like the task force, the city supposedly committed to building limited shelter capacity, like building out limited shelter capacity. So they were supposed to take over these buildings throughout the city, and they would house 100 people, right, instead of like several hundred. And that was one of the plans, in addition to scaling permanent housing um, to, to a, a larger degree, right? So they're supposed to be building out shelter capacity um, that was supposed to be more effective and more attentive to individual needs. At the same time, they're supposed to be scaling permanent housing at an actually affordable level for homeless and housing insecure residents. But what we've seen in the last few years is that that hasn't happened. Um, we have not seen an increase in shelter capacity. We have not seen an increase in affordable housing. Um, in 2022, there was 24,000 people on the wait list for um, the housing program, the Atlanta Housing Authority. You know, and so now they're at this point where like they open up the wait list a week at a time. You know, um, and so what would have to happen is a, a massive diversion of funding, right, to homeless aid homeless services to affordable housing, to housing first programs, which is 
basically programs that put people directly into um, a housing situation, to apartments or a house, and then provide wraparound services from there. Um, instead of trying to like get people to go through drug and alcohol rehab programs or some sort of like felony diversion programs, like expungement programs, the goal is to just get them in housing and then work from there. And so the city would literally have to rewire its entire fiscal budget because right now all of our funding is going to the police. A full third of it is going to the police. Um, and the city of Atlanta hasn't made good on any of the promises it made in the closing of the shelter. Um, it was just paying lip service to, I don't know, the news, I guess, because, I mean, you had so many people protesting in the streets at the closing of the shelter. So many people, um, housed and unhoused, knew how this would affect everyone in the city of Atlanta, not just the homeless. So many people drew that connection between increased policing and increased homelessness. And they knew that all of us are vulnerable to the violences that exist at that juncture. We're just about out of time. I want to end by going back to some of your time at Peachtree and Pine and what it inspired um, and the opportunities that it created. You wrote a dissertation focused on the ways that Atlanta's Black children and families play under housing insecure conditions, partially drawn from your experiences there at Peachtree and Pine. Can you talk about the importance of play for Black kids and families and also the impacts of services in, in the context of services like homeless shelters or alternatively the impacts of policing on play for Black kids? Yeah, so the my work at the PhD Pine Shelter is one of the most pivotal experiences of my entire life. Um, I really grew as a person. I grew as an, an activist and um, I have never experienced the type of love that I did in that community um, anywhere else. And so much of my work after that was inspired by this question of like housing insecurity and what happens to women and children in particular, black women and children, where are they finding joy? Where are they building community? How are they doing that? And so my work actually was situated at Thomasville Heights, um, which was, uh, Situa is, is placed across the street from Four Seasons Apartments, which is also Forest Cove, and the apartments have since shut down. The school has since shut down due to gentrification, but many of the people living in Forest Cove were effectively considered homeless and housing insecure because the conditions were that bad. But what I found is that if I took the time to sit and watch the way these children are playing, I was not only learning about how they build communities and how people grow up in these spaces and build a safety in each other. I was also witnessing what mutual aid looks like. So many children were playing together and then the mamas met each other on the playground and now the mamas are feeding each other on each other's food stamps cards because now everybody's eating dinner together. You know, um, their play was revealing to me both systemic injustices because, you know, cops and robbers, that's a popular game that kids play, but you know, depending on your proximity to actual police violence, your cops and robbers looks a little differently. The language that is used in those games looks a little differently. But you're also seeing like these like really exciting and, and meaningful creative games that are coming out of the conditions that kids are living in, both like positive and negative. Um, so I watched these kids build out an entire imaginative cash system. Um, 
that involved just like plain loose leaf paper. And even though, you know, it was just this, it was just an imaginative game, the paper developed its own set of currency throughout the neighborhood. You know, kids really believe that if they took it to the corner store, it was going to be accepted there. And so there's just this way in which people had poured into this game and the kids were able to give back to the culture and, and give back to the community through their play. And I feel like that's so commonly overlooked. We look at these spaces and we just see like abject poverty. We, we see what the news tells us um, these spaces are, which is, you know, sad and decrepit, but what's actually happening in these spaces is incredible resilience, incredible community. Um, and people who are asking big questions and processing and responding to them in the most creative ways possible. Um, and I really credit a lot of my work at the shelter for the ability to see these children in the way they play, to, to talk to the mothers and literally just like exist in space with them. Because so much of my day at the shelter was just sitting in the lobby, talking to the women and coloring with the kids in between case, you know, cases. And that was a lot of my work at Thomasville. It's just like following the moms around until they went home. And then I went home with them and we played football with the kids for six hours. And while I was playing football, they're telling me about their experiences with police. They're telling me about their experiences at school and um, they're telling me about their housing situations, you know. And it was through play that I gained a level of like access and, and community in that space. And so the shelter, Peachtree and Pine, really opened the door for me to be able to see and exist and in different spaces in a way that I feel has been really meaningful to my work now. It's really great to be able to frame a conversation around policing, around defunding or funding of social and social programs or police through a conversation about the importance of play. So I want to thank you for that. Ariana Brazier, we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. That's the voice of Ariana Brazier, a Black queer feminist mom who wrote her doctoral dissertation on the intersections of housing insecurity and the ways that Black children and families play in Atlanta. On our website, we'll link to her piece in Scalawag magazine, The Taking of Peachtree Pine and the Dawning of Cop City. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox 5. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam. Bye.